Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff. Today, I sit down with Stephen Himmel, partner at Vantera Capital and Vantera Capital's Accelerator Fund. Vantera funds and advises mission-driven consumer companies, which on the fashion side include Nottam and Something Navy. I wanted to ask Stephen how the pandemic has changed the company's investment strategy and what he thinks the future holds for the DTC model. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Hey, I love Nottam. I am a uh, fan of Matt Scanlon over there. Tell me when you linked with Nottam and and what drew you, what uh, attracted you to the company? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Matt as well. So we had a chance to meet him about three, four years ago, and he really just pitched us on the story in terms of the backpacking trip that he went to Mongolia with his co-founder, Dijic, and we were honestly just blown away. We felt like it was a you know made-for-a-movie-type uh, a situation, and it was really just a great story to build a brand around. Uh, we really liked Matt as a person. That's always very important to us, just the quality of the entrepreneurs that we're backing. He's very humble, but also very ambitious and had a very clear vision in terms of what he wanted to build and also how he wanted to build the business. He was looking to scale Nottam in a very capital efficient way. And a lot of his values at a high level just really matched up with ours. So we've been fortunate enough to be partners with him for a number of years and are really excited for the future of the business. Well, for those who don't know, talk about Ventera. I'm going to get it right. Capital. <laughs> um, mission-driven companies. Um, kind of 60 plus, there are a lot. Fashion's maybe not the the core focus, but yeah, who are you investing in these days and and what's the focus there? Yeah, so Vantara, its heritage is actually a private equity firm. So it was launched about 13 years ago. I joined the firm when it was just launching. Uh, The name Vantara comes from Vantage, Vantage Point and Terra, which is Earth. So it's about having a global perspective and really keeping an open mind when thinking about investing and who to partner with. So about three or four years ago, we started waiting more into the venture space. And the reason for that was, you know, we were really before that working with companies that had been around for 10, 20, 30 plus years. And we're seeing this this disruption in the earlier side of businesses. So companies that were launching, you know, a year or two or three years out of the gate, scaling to 50 plus 100 plus million in revenue really, really quickly. And because of this information that we had seen in the market, we really felt like it was necessary to capitalize on that opportunity. So we launched a a venture specific fund about two and a half, three years ago, as you mentioned, it's called VAF, the Ventara Accelerator Fund. And the focus for the vehicle is really looking at two different segments of the market. One is the consumer space and the other is consumer tech, where you're seeing basically the blending between consumer and technology coming together. So on the consumer side, a big focus for us is what we call the ESY space, better for the environment, better for society and better for you. We felt like that was really important just from you know a value standpoint to focus on, given where the world is heading. And we also felt like it was a win-win. It's something that consumers are really, um, you know, desiring, whether it's the millennial or Gen Z, uh, you know, uh, buyer that's top of mind in terms of their purchasing behavior. And on the consumer tech side, you know, it was clear to us that the D to C revolution was going to continue. So finding good businesses who are really behind the scenes and picks and shovels, if you will, to help these D to C companies scale in a more efficient manner. I mean, it's the right time for that kind of a business for sure. How are you finding these companies? Are you being pitched left and right? Yeah, so it's it's a combination of a couple different channels. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think we all we we have really great partners across the portfolio. So within VAF, we have about twelve businesses 
Those are all backed by really strong entrepreneurs that have a great eye, a great network, and really understand what it takes to scale a business successfully. They're always being approached by the younger generation of entrepreneur that's looking for advice or capital. And so we get referred a lot of opportunities through the entrepreneurs we're already working with. Uh, that's one channel. We're obviously out in the market. You know, I'm longing for the days where Expo West and Expo East are back on. And Expo West and Expo East, for those who don't know, is basically the nation's largest kind of functional food and beverage, beauty, natural products um, summit or expo, if you will. Um, and that's a really great opportunity just to kind of scout the market and see what, what type of trends are developing. How has the pandemic uh, changed your focus? Uh, you mentioned beauty. I know health and wellness is also a focus. Uh, are you, I mentioned fashion brands, but I mean, are fa <laughs> who is dressing up maybe other than loungewear, but is, has the focus moved from fashion or how would you describe that? No, I mean, honestly, the, the pandemic has really kind of pushed us to really double down on our thesis. You know, when we came up with the ESY concept, obviously that was pre-COVID, but where the world has changed, I mean, we've kind of seen it as an acceleration. It's essentially as if, you know, in a 12-month period over 2020, you know, the world pressed fast forward and we basically skipped, you know, three or four years ahead to where we were before that. So everything that we were focused on before is even more relevant today. We think that's going to continue in the future as the media cycle, you know, um, scales down the COVID conversation. We believe it's going to scale up in terms of the conversation around, you know, better for the environment initiatives, you know, tackling the issues we have along around global warming and habitat destruction, tackling the issues we have as a nation and society around, you know, really creating um, in general a healthier uh, culture and healthier lifestyle, more 360 um, awareness around, you know, how are you living in terms of what are you eating? How are you treating your body? How are you treating your mind? So we've really just doubled down across the board. Yeah. I mean, has the world opened up for you as every brand is now focusing on sustainability and really sees the the value and in, in shouting that out and incorporating that into their business model? Yeah, so there's definitely a couple themes that, you know, we've seen that are more relevant today than they were probably 18 months ago. One, obviously, you mentioned is sustainability. I think a lot of our portfolio companies are becoming more mindful of that. And the most evident place of that is really around packaging and shipping and logistics. So if you think about that, that's obviously a very energy intensive process of, you know, moving goods around the world and protecting them in a way so they get to the consumer and they're not ruined. So carbon footprint is obviously top of mind. We've seen a lot of companies that are actually purchasing carbon credits to offset their carbon footprint so they can go out to market and, and tell the story about, you know, we're actually carbon neutral from a shipping standpoint. And then on the packaging side, really trying to figure out how to minimize waste when it comes to usage of plastic, um, you know, usage of basically protection, like with, within a box, that type of thing. And there's some really um, exciting materials coming out on that front that are, you know, biodegradable and not harmful to the environment. And hopefully within the next, you know, call it two or three years, all of our companies are going to have, you know, really a far more sustainable packaging and carbon footprint. On that note, tell me about um, your collaborative, I guess, investment with Nottam and Package Free. I was just reading about that. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, Nottam, Nottam's in a really great position because they've successfully scaled their business to the point where, you know, they have an entire infrastructure in place around, you know, the supply chain, the logistics 
um, inventory management. They have a large marketing team. They really understand how to build brands and how to scale them. You know, Nottam on its own has, you know, really reached a, a revenue threshold. I can't get into specific numbers, but, you know, that's really um, quite meaningful. And so we've actually had the opportunity to partner with a few other brands in the market. Uh, the first instance of that was with Something Navy and the influencer Ariel Charnas. She obviously has a great following and a great brand, but doesn't have the infrastructure um, and ability to scale her business. And so Matt, the CEO at Nottam and the team at Nottam has basically partnered up with Ariel to help her scale her business. And it's really, you know, a great win-win for both sides. Um, when it comes to Package Free, you know, a business that was founded by Lauren Singer, really just an unbelievably brilliant mind when it comes to um, sustainability and eco-friendliness. You know, she's had an amazing vision around how to build a successful consumer business in the most sustainable manner possible. Um, you know, same same kind of situation there. Nanam is working with her to help scale her business from the standpoint of operations, logistics, you know, inventory management, etc. And basically what we're looking to do is take best practices from her business and her ethos around how to scale a, com a, a consumer company and apply that across, you know, the entire Nottam portfolio of brands. So we're super excited. You know, we think that there's great growth within Nottam, not just from the core business, which is obviously focused around cashmere and loungewear and comfortable apparel, but also some of these partnerships that we've now basically structured. When I look at your portfolio, it really like DTC kind of stands out in my head. But I know that you also you believe in an omni-channel, I guess, approach to business. Tell me about that balance. Yeah. So, you know, we think at the end of the day to have a successful exit in a company, obviously, you know, we're venture investors. And at the end of the day, at some point, we are going to need to exit these businesses. That's the name of the game for us um, in terms of getting to a point where we feel they're large enough to be you know, on the radar of a strategic acquirer or a financial acquirer or go public, ultimately, you are going to want to have an omni-channel type strategy. And, and obviously, that's a combination of your D2C strategy and, and your physical kind of retail strategy. So, you know, our strategy is typically to work with businesses that are digitally native, they're digital first, whether they're, you know, selling on their Shopify site or on Amazon, and really get to scale, create enough momentum behind the brand, behind the product to then go out to specific retailers. And to be honest with you, every situation is different. So some might be a better fit for a CVS or a Walgreens. Other might be a better fit for a Target. Some might be a perfect match with a Walmart per se. And really use that as a way to go out and continue to build the brand awareness. Technology. Um, the technology for a direct-to-consumer brand, um, you mentioned you're investing in that also. I mean, what's needed to be competitive? Where are you, where are you focusing there? Yeah, so the thesis there is is really around finding technologies that improve the user experience um, when you're shopping digitally. So think about personalization, customization, um, checkout times. Essentially, what Amazon has been able to do so well, you know, one-click purchasing, you know, having your product arrive sometimes within 24 hours. That obviously isn't the case when you move off of a, a large platform like Amazon and onto a, like a specific Shopify site of a, of a company. So we're seeing really interesting businesses that are just in improving the user experience that you can basically plug and play onto your Shopify site. Um, and use that as a way to scale your, your company. 
There are other ways where technology is really improving the business fundamentals. For example, we invested in a business called Julius, which is essentially an influencer platform. It really allows you to um, more accurately target uh, micro-influencers and influencers that would be a great fit for your brand and help you drive awareness and build community. I remember also reading that you guys were, um, I don't know if you are if you linked with Leap, but you were very much, uh, <laughs> I guess, into that business model of a, a flexible lease. Uh, what, what works these days in terms of physical retail, uh, a brand's owned store? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. So Leap is a really interesting business. Uh, they've been great partners of Nottum. And essentially what Leap is, is a retail as a service model. So it's this new concept that basically allows digitally native brands that don't have a physical retail presence, a plug and play solution. So Leap effectively will go out and scour um, a different neighborhood or a city and find a really good location where they think a brand would be a good fit to go into that space and basically launch a store in a very short period of time. For a digitally native company that doesn't have the expertise around, again, finding the right location, structuring the lease, um, managing the physical store, Leap basically can do all of that for you. So it's a, it's, it's a great way for a digital brand to kind of dip their toe in the water and, and gain some really valuable insights from a physical store and physical retail presence, and then basically use that as um, a part of the strategy down the line to more effectively launch, you know, potentially their own retail strategy if they so choose. But, you know, Leap is a really great option. And and, um, I hope that they can continue to work with more brands because I think it'll just help everyone across the board succeed. I guess, when would it make sense to go it alone and (laughs) tackle that long-term lease? Does that ever make sense this day and age? Um, Well, you know, just given what's happened in the commercial, you know, real estate market, I think that there will be selective opportunities where if you can get a lease at an amazing, you know, price and it's not long term, that's something that I would encourage a lot of companies to go out and kind of test the waters, if you will. But, you know, the the, the shorter duration and the less amount of CapEx that you need to invest in that space, the better. So I would just, you know, recommend to businesses to try and stay as nimble and flexible as possible, because ultimately, you know, transitioning from a digital platform to a physical in-store experience, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of resources, a lot of manpower. It can ultimately be a really large distraction for a business. So I would definitely start small and, you know, location is key. Obviously, New York City is really a great, you know, um, environment to launch any business just because you have such a mass of, of consumers and, you know, make sure that you have enough scale to basically, you know, target that market appropriately. You mentioned retail partners. Would you say that they're almost, a, it's a, a risk. We saw what happened with all of the canceled orders and brands getting stuck with inventory and the mess that it was, but also, you know, retail's not in the best shape. How would you mm-hmm. describe, yeah, linking with a department store, for example? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, we got lucky um, in a lot of ways because we didn't have a lot of kind of wholesale exposure or physical kind of retail exposure. Um, and that really allowed us to kind of lean into um, building new partnerships when a lot of larger incumbents were actually looking to retrench. 
I think the benefit of working with earlier stage businesses is they can be more nimble, they can be more flexible, they don't nearly have the overhead structure that larger incumbents do. So in a period like COVID where everyone's scrambling and trying to figure out, you know, what the heck to do, the larger ones will retrench. I would, you know, advise all of the earlier stage businesses, which we had discussed in our portfolio, really, you know, lean into what is going on and and use this kind of period of chaos, if you will, or reshuffling of the deck to try and, you know, go out, use that as an opportunity to capture more market share to build your brand. Yes. We hear a lot about brands raising money, getting big Mm -hmm. investments, putting it all into digital media, digital ads, Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, growth, growth over profitability. What's your take on that? Yeah. You know, um, it's becoming, to be honest with you, it's becoming more difficult for earlier stage businesses to scale in a digitally only manner. We've seen you know, the the changes that Apple just implemented on their new iOS platform in the tracking of data and privacy. I think that there's a continuing increase in the cost of advertising across Facebook and Instagram, which has really been the best crutch to date to help scale these companies. So trying to become a little bit more creative and less reliant on those channels, I think is one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing, The other thing to keep in mind is, you know, just realizing that it's okay to move slowly. I think that there is, um, you know, part of it is really just a, a cultural change in terms of, you know, the younger generation wanting everything now. Like it's a, it's, it's a de- kind of a desire for immediacy. So they're like, you know, I'm going to launch this business and I need to have at least 10 million in revenue in the first 12 months or whatever, whatever the numbers may be. It's, it's very anxious and, and they want to kind of go, go, go. Our recommendation is to just take your time. If you're spending to acquire a customer, just for example, $100 in your AOV is only $60, you know, that those numbers just don't make sense in the long term. So take a step back and really figure out what's working and what's not. And if it takes you a little bit longer, that's completely okay. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're in this period where, you know, there's liquidity, you know, across the board. People want to continue to invest in earlier stage businesses, and that may not last forever. Who knows what could happen in the future to cause the capital markets to dry up? So at the end of the day, cash is king, and you're going to want to have a little bit um, on the sidelines for a rainy day, if you will, just in case things don't continue to go this well. Tell me about your the founder, I guess, story, the pitch. When, when they come to you, when, when do you know you have something, and also when do you know that uh, pass for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, as I kind of mentioned with Matt earlier, I, I think, you know, everything starts with the people, uh, that's by far the most important determinant of success in these earlier stage businesses. It's, you know, um, individuals who are very smart, but also very humble. You know, I think arrogance and overconfidence can really be a detriment to an earlier stage business. Um, the willingness to listen and to take advice and be collaborative is also very important as well. So it always starts with people. Um, in terms of the product, you know, we're really looking for things that are um, kind of moving the conversation. And, and really, that's kind of category specific. And I'll just kind of give you, you know, one example. Let's take uh, functional food and beverage, which fits within our better for you category. 
um, you know, if you were to look back kind of 20 years or something like that, people were talking about the organic movement. And then, you know, people were talking about um, maybe sugar alternatives, whether it was um, allulose or erythritol or stevia or monk fruit, whatever it is. And th those conversations are still going on. And I think that there are some benefits to those sugar alternatives. But where does the conversation go from here in terms of okay, let's look at the ingredients label of a product. Maybe it has five grams of sugar, 10 grams of sugar, 20 grams of sugar, and, and, and using that as your benchmark. We're thinking one step forward, which is, okay, what does the glycemic index of this product look like? And, and for those who don't know, a glycemic index is basically a measurement of how your body absorbs that sugar and, and what it does to your insulin levels with, within your system. And that can be a big causer of stress and inflammation and et cetera. So we're trying to figure out, okay, as customers become more educated in the next few years, you know, how will things like glycemic index affects their purchasing behavior? And so one of the ingredients that we're really looking for in our products is fiber. Fiber is an amazing um, supplement that people can take. It has uh, benefits from a cholesterol standpoint, benefits from a beauty standpoint, um, benefits from a nutrient absorption standpoint. But Americans, because we you know live in a culture which is basically revolving around you know highly processed food, ninety five percent of Americans do not get enough fiber in their diet. And so, figuring out okay, what ingredient can help you in terms of you know, a glycemic index, that type of example is something that we're looking for. Smart. It reminds me of, I know that on the beauty side, uh, you really believe in science-backed brands. It kind of ties mm -hmm. to that. Tell me about that because we hear clean beauty, clean beauty. But um, yeah, where is your focus there? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of businesses in the beauty space are really just marketing companies and, and nothing against them. I think they've built you know, really great businesses around community and identity and connection with a specific brand or a specific, you know, group of people. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of beauty brands out there that are very successful, that when you peel a layer deep, you know, don't really have any proven science behind them. So when it comes to the category of supplements and also beauty, you know, we're really looking for efficacy because we feel like that will give us a leg up and will really allow the business to continue to scale over the long term as the product actually performs. So if you think about companies that are not science-backed that maybe don't work, at some point, our belief is you're going to start seeing higher churn in that business. But if you back a business that has science behind it, that's proven performance, your retention of that product will be higher over the long term. So, you know, we've we've seen that in a business we back called Biome, which is a probiotics business focused around gut health, also a big benefit from a beauty standpoint. Um, and they have the world's largest database of gut profiles um, and doing some really interesting things around that data. So you've linked with a brand, you've invested in a brand. Where's this, where does it go from there? How often are you talking to these founders? Uh, how are you advising them and guiding them? I'm sure it depends on the brand, but how would you describe your, I guess, interaction and yeah, how closely you're working with them? Before we make an investment in a business, you know, we want to be completely aligned with the founders. So we usually set out some type of plan before we actually commit to investing in the company just to make sure that we're on the same page. Because obviously, you know, these are long-term relationships and you can't just kind of, you know, back out of them. So a lot of that revolves around, okay, first, first question is where do you, you need help as a founder 
and do we believe we can actually be helpful to you? If we can't, that really reduces the likelihood that we'll actually invest in your business. Um, for Vantera, because we have a private equity heritage and we have relationships with a lot of larger scale companies, we can apply best practices, we can apply business development principles to these earlier stage businesses. So generally speaking, we like to get involved where we are value add. Um, from there, we'll set out kind of like a hundred day plan uh, where we'll talk about, okay, where are the specific areas that we want to basically target to help you scale your business out of the gate? Uh, and then from there, you know, the communication is, is typically weekly, sometimes more than that. Sometimes it's two or three times a week for the first couple months. Um, and ultimately, it'll get to a point where it's usually biweekly. Tell me some red flags in the pitch process. We didn't talk too much about it, but what are red flags? <laughs> Period. Yeah. So um, like, I think there's probably three, three areas. Uh, you know, one is product, two is people, and, and three is performance. So on the product side, you know, we do have specific kind of hard no's where, you know, I've seen over the last, let's call it five years, probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 different plastic bottle water companies. I personally feel that there's absolutely no need to go to the supermarket and buy a plastic bottle of water. You know, single use plastic lasts forever. You're using that bottle one time. It's water that's probably no better or uh, in terms of quality, in terms of just, you know, getting it out of your tap and using any type of filter, like an Epic filter, so to say. So there are certain hard no's from a product standpoint. From a people standpoint, it really just gets back to kind of character. Um, you know, again, those traits around, uh, do they have kind of a tinge of arrogance or overconfidence? That's usually a big red flag to us. Um do they want our advice? Are they? Do we feel like they're going to seek our advice? Are they going to lead with bad news? Um, those are typically red flags that will come up in the process over thirty days of getting to know a founder. And then the third, from a performance standpoint, there are you know specific KPIs that we look at in terms of how the business is scaled to date. That would be a red flag for us. So, for example, capital efficiency. You know, just to use kind of a, a rough number, if they're doing. If they're for every dollar in revenue that they're making, they're burning a dollar. You know, that's typically a red flag for us because we like to back companies that are more capital efficient. So we kind of shoot for something closer to $5 of revenue to $1 of cash burn. If you have something like $10 of revenue to $1 of cash burn, you know, that's even better. So we look for specific KPIs as well. So you're investing uh, better for the environment and better for society, better for you. Do you yeah. say, I mean, are all of your companies wellness companies. <laughs> um, what's your take on wellness right now? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think if it's better for you, it's, you know, to be honest with you, probably better for the environment and probably better for society. Um, and you, you can see that across the board, again, just kind of in the functional food and beverage space, you know, backing plant-based foods, um, obviously the conversation around you know, meat and whether it's emissions or the runoff that that ultimately ends up in the waterways. Usually if it's better for you, it's it's probably better for the environment. So that's a that's a double win right there. The companies that we ultimately look to back don't have to check the box in all three criteria. For example, there are some businesses that just aren't necessarily better for you just because it's really just a, a consumer product good that would have really no effect on your health regardless. So a lot of them are either, you know, better for the environment. Um, some are socially responsible. 
uh, like a Nottam, for example, that's incorporating practices like, you know, fair trade, fair pricing across the supply chain, give back programs in terms of, you know, building uh, parks and donating to local schools in the area where they're sourcing their um, uh, original kind of ingredients. And so it's really very case specific, but, you know, we have to be able to make the argument for at least one of those three criteria before we make an investment. Yes. What are your predictions for 2021? Where is, uh, let's focus on our world. If you want to say fashion, beauty, where's the industry going? Um, I think aliens are going to land on planet Earth at some <laughs> point this year, just given everything is getting weirder and weirder. So I'll take a, <laughs> I'll take a moonshot projecting there. Thanks. And if, Things if, are getting weird. You're yeah, right. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm right, give me credit for that one. Um, but uh, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I think the, you know, kind of natural movement is going to continue. Um, I think the customer is going to become, you know, continue to become more and more educated around, you know, specific chemicals that are used in ingredients. And they're really going to start, you know, focusing more on the labels and what they're putting on their skin or on their hair or in their bodies. Uh, you know, I think the the conversation around packaging is one that's going to continue to be, you know, really interesting. And I think another thing that we're going to continue to see is the blending of products that are uh, bifurcated by gender. So instead of selling something that's specifically for male or specifically for female, you know, really just branding around unisex at the, at the end of the day, there's a lot of products that can be used by a male and female and really aren't going to have much of a difference, but it's easier to share under one household. It, it just makes more sense to basically, you know, target two users from one purchaser, which will, can, get you, can get you some kind of nice scaling there. So I think the unisex conversation will continue to evolve and become more kind of commonplace. Yes. Well, Congrats. You recently had uh, the fund's first successful exit. Can you tell me about, uh, like, is that the goal? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for the brand? Uh, everyone's going there. <laughs> That's what we all want. Anyway, yeah, how would right. you describe it's, it? Exactly. It's, it's, it's nice to have a good exit and also be involved in a business that we feel like is making the consumer that you know, consumes that healthier on a, on a daily basis. So I think you're probably mentioning um, or referring to Hue Products, which was acquired by... I, am, I was checking mm -hmm. out because I didn't know if it was Hue or Hue. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to yeah. mess up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so they were acquired by a, a public entity earlier this year. Uh, the whole kind of concept around that business was get back to eating how our ancestors ate, which again was around, you know, reducing the amount of chemicals and synthetic materials that are in in the products. So they launched originally with a chocolate bar. Tastes phenomenal. The interesting thing that they did is they added a little bit more salt to uh, the chocolate, which typically has not been done in the past. You know, if you talk about milk chocolate and dark chocolate, it's really just been a conversation around sweet. And when you add a little hint of salt to that, it really increases the flavor profile. So that was kind of their uh, little interesting kind of twist. And really, it, I mean, it tastes phenomenal. So they did a great job with that. So, you know, that was a business that we were only invested in for, you know, I think it was less than three years. And it just it just kind of proves the thesis that if you back a really good product and a strong management team that has a very effective kind of strategy for scaling, you know, you can sell that business in a very short time period. Outside of, of, of Hue, we have a couple other companies 
that I'm excited for, I think in the near term are going to have some nice exits. So yeah, I think it's good validation for our strategy and for the picks that we've made and, and hopefully it continues. Last question for Veal. Sure. Acquiring customers. If it, if it was all about that, I mean, digital media is still that. Like, what would be your your plan to do it smartly right now? You're leading a brand. You just want customers. You're newer. What would you be doing? Is there three steps? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's a it's a good it's a good question. So, you know, un- unfortunately, I think a lot of businesses are are still tied to you know Facebook. In Instagram, but I do think that there are other channels that are cheaper and that have really kind of strong engagement and you know a, a sense of community that will only continue to grow. And just you know, one example of that is you know, for example, Pinterest, where the costs of getting on that platform and advertising are far cheaper. And you know, it's really great visual platform. It can allow you to display your brand and your kind of identity in a really effective manner. And I think it's only going to become more sophisticated in terms of how Pinterest is working with small businesses to help them scale. Uh, Twitter, honestly, is another one that has, you know, a really interesting advertising and marketing platform. that's probably an afterthought relative to, you know, a Facebook and Instagram, you know, and outside of that, it's really just being creative in terms of kind of guerrilla marketing, um, you know, working, identifying the right partners that have a nice following that, you know, they don't need to be mega influencers or anything like that. But I would recommend, you know, looking into a platform like a Julius, where you can go out and figure out who are the kind of thought leaders in a specific category and, 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 and work with them. You know, everybody, I think, in a gig economy is open to a conversation and, and promoting a brand that they identify with. So, you know, I think those those types of platforms like a Julius are, are a good place to start as well. Yeah, I think Pinterest and Twitter are underrated. I am with you. Would you yeah. say uh, influencers, keep them in rotation? It's more, but maybe more micro influencers. How would you describe the future of influencer marketing? Yeah, I, I think micro influencers are, um, generally speaking, have a little bit higher engagement and um, a little bit easier to kind of tell the story uh, just because, you know, they're I think broadly speaking, maybe a little bit easier to work with, or you can get a little bit more access to them. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of the micro influencer community, you know, obviously finding enough to help scale your business is important, but, you know, we have an amazing database. Um, for example, as I mentioned at Julius, where we have thousands of those individuals where you can kind of go out and, and target them, you know, specifically t- to work with them, but really, you know, it's really just trying to figure out how you're going to build community and create somewhat of a me too product. So at the end of the day, you know, consumer products is is about brand, it's about storytelling, and it's about community. So finding a way to make your product something that buyers want to buy, because they want to identify with everybody else who's using it is key. And there's, you know, hundreds of not thousands of ways to do that. Right on. Write it down. That's a really good good way to end it. Good advice. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Stephen. Thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thanks again. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.